So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening from wherever you're tuning in from. Uh, welcome to this public event on Gulf-Israel relations, and it's hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Clemens Che, and I will act as moderator for this event that will be recorded. The cultivation of bilateral ties between the Gulf states and Israel, with the exception of Kuwait, uh, which we will talk about later, has been an open secret. And to the extent that one Middle East commentator, Ian Black, calls these relations just below the surface. He alludes to Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's remarks uh, on September 2017, when he told Israeli diplomats at the foreign ministry, and I quote, what is happening in practice with Arab states has never happened in our history, even when we signed peace agreements. And in practice, cooperation in different ways and at different levels isn't necessarily visible above the surface, but what is below the surface is far greater than at any period in Israel's victory. It is a huge change." Unquote. So alongside cooperative initiatives are high-profile state visits, including Netanyahu's visit to Oman in October 2018 for talks with Sultan Qaboos, uh, the late Sultan Qaboos, accompanied by the head of the Mossad. So more recently, course, the UAE became the first Gulf state and the third Arab state behind Egypt and Jordan to recognize and fully normalize relations with Israel. The UAE-Israel deal, also known as the Abraham Accord, makes today's discussion more timely than ever, not only because it marks the establishment of overt diplomatic relations, but also because of the impl implications the deal has for the Gulf, Arab public opinion in general, and the remaining solutions for the Palestinians, Palestinians among others. So today, we are delighted to have with us a stellar list of speakers who are joining us from very different time zones. Uh, please allow me to introduce our four speakers. First, Mr. Sigurd Neubauer. He's a Gulf analyst and commentator. Welcome, Mr. Sigurd. He is the author of The Gulf Region and Israel, Old Struggles, New Alliances by Kodesh Press 2020, recently released. And he is the co-editor of The Gulf Crisis, Reshaping Alliance in the Middle East, published by the Gulf International Forum in 2018. His decades-long research experience focuses on US-Gulf relations, uh, including the Gulf states, intra-Gulf dynamics, Gulf-Israeli relations, and these span from the U.S. Defense Ministry, U.S. Defense Industry to Washington think tanks and Arab media. He's also authored dozens of scholarly articles and hundreds of commentary pieces, including for the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, CNN, Fox News, so on and so forth. Um, uh, from 2019 to 2018, Mr. Neubauer was a senior analyst for SOS International, a U.S. defense consultancy. So we welcome him on board the panel today. And we also have with us today, Dr. Abdullah Baboud, who was my former colleague. He recently took up uh, the position of visiting professor at the School of International and Liberal Studies at Waseda University, Japan. He was previously a visiting research professor here with us at the MEI. And he also held the positions of director 
at both the Gulf Research Centre at the University of Cambridge and at the Gulf Study Centre in Qatar, Qatar University. His research, in, research interests are primarily focused on the Gulf states, uh, their economic, social and political development. So welcome Dr. Abdullah Babu, good to see you again. Also with us today is Dr. Shafiq Habra. Uh, he's joining us from Washington, D.C. He's a professor of political science at Kuwait University and the founding president of Jusor Arabiya, which focuses on youth leadership programs and strategic planning. He is the former founding president of the American University of Kuwait. He also directed the Kuwait Information Office in Washington, D.C., and the Center of Strategic Studies at Kuwait University. Dr. Kabra earned his BA from Georgetown, his MA from Purdue University, and his PhD in Political Science from the University of Texas at, at Austin in 1987. He is the author of five books and numerous studies. And our fourth speaker is Rabbi David Rawson. Pleased to have you on board. He is the International Director of Interreligious Affairs of the American Jewish Committee. He is concurrently a member of the Chief Rabbinate of Israel's Committee for Interreligious Dialogue and serves also on the Council of the Religious Institutions of the Holy Land. He, he holds positions in various organizations, including as the International President of the World Conference on Religion and Peace, Honorary President of the International Council of Christians and Jews, and as the only Jewish member of the Board of Directors of the, Kim, of the King Abdullah International Center for Interreligious and Intercultural Dialogue, established in 2012 by the King of Saudi Arabia, together with the governments of Austria and Spain with the support of the Holy See. So very glad to have all of you on board. Uh, before we begin, a few house rules on the format of the event proceedings. Each speaker will have the opening remarks of a maximum of 10 minutes, following which the other panelists can jump in to respond briefly. And after all the speakers have de delivered their 10 minute statements, we will start taking questions from the floor. For the audience, it's a pleasure to have you today with us. Uh, please remain muted and have your video switch off so the focus will be on our speakers. You are, you are welcome to participate in the Q&A by sending your questions through via the Zoom chat box. So without further ado, let us kick off with Mr. Sigurd Neubauer. Welcome Sigurd, your, your book was recently published almost a month ago with an interesting title to characterize Gulf-Israel relations. You call it old struggles, new alliances. If you could run us through why there is an increasing cultivation of ties and in light of the UAE-Israel deal, does this, does this signify a strategic shift in Israel's relations with the Gulf? That's the first question. How can we see also in the narratives that have been promoted, such as the Gulf-Israel alliance against Iran? And on that note, based on the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, what can we expect from the kingdom? Of course, the latest is that, the, that Prince Turki al-Faisal says, says that there is no normalization without a Palestinian state. And that's also echoed by King Salman just yesterday, who told President Donald Trump that he wants a fair and permanent solution for the Palestinians. So over to you, Sigrid. 
Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, be here with uh, all of you today. And um, <clears throat> the um, discussion is uh, certainly timely. Let me just tell you quickly about my own book and uh, why the title that I chose, because um, the public narrative has been um, over many years, and especially since Donald Trump uh, became president, that there is a Gulf-Israel alliance against Iran. That has been a narrative that has been promoted by the Israeli prime minister. And it is a narrative that has been adopted, if you will, by the Trump administration. And um, um, why I think it's really important to understand, and this is, some, this is a key plank of my book, is that Gulf-Israel relations are not uh, necessarily motivated by Iran, but rather by um, inter-Gulf Arab rivalry and how it plays out in Washington. And the Gulf crisis, um, namely the um, Qatar crisis, is a primary example of that. That is something that, that, I, um, that I will discuss later in my pre uh, prepared remarks. But what I think is important to understand is that Gulf-Israel relations did not start in 2016. Um, Gulf-Israel relations go back um, a very long time. And um, what we are seeing uh, during the Trump presidency is that we have seen the emergence of uh, old Arabian struggles really um, hitting the surface, bubbling up um, uh, uh, throughout the surface. And that's why I call, it, call my book, Old Struggles, New Alliances, because the struggles between Qatar and and its neighbors, that's a struggle that go back a long time. Um, and uh, the struggles between Oman and uh, UAE and, um, and Saudi Arabia are also struggles that go back a long time. As a matter of fact, in the 1950s, uh, Britain intervened uh, to prevent the full-scale war between um, Oman and, uh, and Saudi Arabia um, over southern Yemen and uh, um, among other issues. So, so we're seeing these tensions um, flare up again, and we're seeing that Israel, contrary again to the public narrative, is playing a stabilizing role um, within the broader Gulf region. Um, the Israeli narrative, as I mentioned, is of course that Iran is uh, its number one strategic threat, but, um, but what we're seeing is that uh, the inter-Arab disputes um, have dragged Israel in, um, to the conflict, uh, to the level that is only public, starting to be publicly known at this moment in time. Uh, so this is my first point. Uh, my second point is when we look at the strategic alignment um, of the Gulf region, um, I would like to point out that Israel's elevated standing in the Gulf, if you will, um, is really uh, driven by chaos in Washington and by a um, unpredictable American president whose administration has made uh, ties between Israel and the Gulf states contingent upon how the various Gulf states um, interact with Israel. And that in itself has has elevated Israel's standing and has also enabled Israel to put a lid on some of these um, inter-Arabian struggles and preventing them really from um, becoming hot conflicts. The case in point is not just the uh, crisis between Qatar and its neighbors. Uh, one of the key planks of my book is that Israel um, became a peacemaker and Israel along with Turkey and Iran played 
increasingly important an increasingly important role to prevent that conflict uh, from becoming a hot um, conflict. And I'll be happy to go into details um, later on. The second point, I think, which is not fully understood yet is that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's historic visit to Muscat was uh, certainly framed publicly as um, Omani support uh, for relaunching direct talks between Israel and the Palestinians. But in reality, it was a Israeli um, decision to shore up support for Sultan Qaboos and his government as uh, Muscat faced an extraordinary difficult crisis with its own uh, neighbor, the United Arab Emirates. And um, the Mossad director's subsequent visit um, to Moscow was to illustrate that uh, ties uh, between Oman and Israel are longstanding and robust. Uh, speaking of which, um, the ties between um, Oman and, and, and Israel um, are not only strategic in nature, uh, they are quite frankly historic. We know that uh, the first uh, engagement between um, Israel and Oman started in the 1970s when uh, the Mossad, along with Iran and uh, Jordan, provided support for Sultan Qaboos in, his, in the civil war against um, uh, the Dofa rebellion in, 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 in southern Yemen. Um, at that point, uh, Israel provided military and technical and and uh, military assistance uh, to Qaboos and uh, some of the introduction uh, between Oman and, uh, and uh, Qaboos was facilitated by the British. So that the relationship really goes back a long time. And, and um, it is also important to understand that um, Oman has really up until recently um, been very discreet um, with its uh, relationship with Israel. And it was only after the Gulf crisis hit Washington, in which Israel was uh, became front and center in uh, in the struggle uh, between uh, Qatar on one hand and the blockading states. Um, that that Oman decided, so to speak, last minute to invite Pre Prime Minister Netanyahu to ensure that the kind of pressure that uh, Qatar had come under from its neighbors would not uh, come to Oman. So this is important. The second thing I think is, is important to understand is that uh, the timing of um, the UAE-Israel peace agreement is significant because it can be argued that um, during the Gulf crisis um, in 2017, when, uh, um, when the blockading states uh, came to President Trump and requested his support for their blockade, um, it can be argued that the, the narrow focus or the exclusive focus on um, Qatar-Hamas um, ties was deliberate, was deliberate rhetoric by the United Arab Emirates and its surrogates in the United States to drag Israel into this inter-Arabian struggle. And at that time, um, it can be argued, and I don't know for sure, but it can be argued that, that uh, the United Arab Emirates may very well have offered Israel full diplomatic relations in exchange for supporting it um, in its struggle against Qatar. If that, uh, if that uh, offer was extended at that time, um, we don't know. But if it was, Israel did not uh, take it. Instead, Israel actually extended Qatar a hand in peace and, and accelerated um, reconstruction in Gaza as a way of providing uh, Qatar with a face-saving measure 
where Kepler could argue that he was not supporting Hamas, but in fact cooperating with, with the Jewish state. So this is an important point. The second point of the timing of the UAE-Israel agreement is that it arrives at a time when um, Oman-Israel uh, relations uh, are steady and strong, even though um, there are public indications, and I'm sure our colleague Abdullah Baboud will discuss this, that there are indications that um, that uh, Oman will not follow through with normalization with Israel as has been um, discussed in the Israeli media. Um, and at the timing of the um, UAE-Israel normalization uh, agreement also comes at a time where Qatar-Israel relations are flourishing. We just saw last week, as a matter of fact, that um, Qatar mediated a ceasefire, a long-term ceasefire between um, Hamas and, and Israel. And um, the ceasefire agreement was, of course, praised by the Israeli president, which uh, goes to show that um, um, that everybody is satis uh, satisfied with the current state of Gulf-Israel dynamics. Um, and um, I'd like to point out that because of the timing, um, it is understood, I think, everywhere in the Gulf, even so reluctantly, that peace between Israel and the United Arab Emirates is not only positive, in my view, but it will not come at the expense of the other Gulf states. So in other words, Israel will um, is acting, in my view, um, with great responsibility in terms of how it is dealing with each of the Gulf countries and how it is moving forward with its normalization um, uh, process with the United Arab Emirates, because um, both in Muscat, perhaps in, in Kuwait, I'll leave that to our colleague, and, and certainly in Doha, there is a lot of unease on, in terms of how the Emirati uh, Saudi um, regional agenda is, is, is being played. And Israel, of course, is now in the middle of the struggle, but because Israel has played a responsible role in terms of keeping um, these inter-Arabian struggles in check, um, I think that, that there, is, there is a cautious optimism that, that if managed correctly, this peace agreement between Israel um, and uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, will have a positive uh, impact on their own security and on the balance of power in the Gulf. Which leads me to my final point, which is to say that um, my own read of this is that um, the agreement between the United Arab Emirates and Israel was um, a bilateral agreement, which is to say that for Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, contrary to what many of my colleagues have argued, um, this, the timing of this agreement is not necessarily about helping Trump in his re-election campaign, as many have suggested, but rather that Mohammed bin Zayed saw a closing window of opportunity, which is to say that the United Arab Emirates uh, has, is very aware of its international image, and its international image was facing uh, significant um, uh, constraints and significant pushback in in, including in the United States, uh, and it uh, and Mohammed bin Zayed saw normalizing normalizing relations with Israel as an opportunity to reinvent himself and reshape the regional narrative. And in that extent, from that point of view, I think that the Israelis helped United Arab Emirates quite significantly, um, just like they have helped Qatar in its own uh, crisis at at its own time. 
So I think that that's an important aspect to the discussion. And because these dynamics are what is guiding, in my view, the Israel-UAE dynamics, um, we have seen that the other Gulf states, because their own tensions with the United Arab Emirates, do not, quote, want to follow the United Arab Emirates. They want to uh, define their relationship with Israel on their own terms. We have seen now that uh, the public rhetoric from public statements from the United, uh, from Oman, Qatar, certainly Kuwait and Saudi Arabia is that normalization will be tied uh, to um, a two-state solution and to progress on the Israeli-Palestinian file. Um, and I think that, um, I'm speculating, but I think that until November, um, there will not be any other additional Arab countries to normalize ties with Israel. Should President uh, Trump be reelected, I think all bets are off. Um, and, and, um, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Sigurd. So you, just to sort of uh, put your comments in a, summarize your comments. Um, so Israel has a stabilizing role and yeah. the old alliances and, and, and struggles that, we, that you talked about uh, is partly also due to dragging an inter-Arabian struggle uh, by bringing Qatar into the picture. And, and you, got the, you got the possibility where Israel is actually a, there's an Israel versus Qatar in exchange for diplomatic relations with, with the UAE. No, and, no, I said, I said the opposite. Okay. Please, can you, can you clarify that point, please? So what, what I'm clarifying is that, that one, the inter-Arabian struggle in, in, um, between Qatar and its neighbors played out in Washington. Um, the objective from the blockading states was to drag Israel in to the crisis and, and get Israel to support their blockade. Um, instead, we saw the opposite. Israel actually did help Qatar and its dire when it was on its knees, to use the lack of a better metaphor, um, and help stabilizing the Gulf crisis. And so um, even though UAE and Qatar are bitter enemies, um, the Gulf, uh, the Israel-UAE uh, peace agreement is not coming at the expense of Qatar or at the expense of any other Gulf state. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, with that, we would like to invite comments from our three panelists. Should we start with uh, Dr. Shafiq? I think you're muted. Okay. So I have about 10 minutes. You will remind me uh, at the time. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I mean, this agreement uh, uh, took the region by surprise. Um, I would not uh, uh, look at it as a positive ag agreement or a positive development. Um, given the state of the region, too many conflicts, uh, Iran, Turkey, civil wars. Um, the UAE is involved in so many different complicated issues and conflicts in the region. Uh, the Gulf crisis, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. So Israel is coming on a already uh, very uh, heated situation that uh, will now become more heated uh, given uh, that there is a Turkish base in Qatar there are American bases in the region. The U.S. seems to be on the way 
out. So does that mean Israel is on the way in? And yet Israel has a major, bigger problem. I would have wished that Israel would have solved its problem, the main problem with the Palestinian people before seeking uh, to go in that direction. Because these relations uh, could survive for a while, but they could be short-lived. They could survive with high hopes, but then they could dwindle slowly over time, given the type of changes and developments that we are all seeing in the region. So it's a complicated situation. Uh, this agreement uh, didn't have uh, any popular support. You will see a lot of support on Twitter, motivated by certain ministries of interior and ministry of information, uh, trolls, uh, different uh, uh, types. It could be a few rooms that is managing uh, hundreds of accounts. But the reality in the street is totally different. People see things differently, to be honest, to be clear. And they still committed to the, uh, the boycott situation uh, for a very simple reason, occupation of Palestinian land. Um, settlement building in East Jerusalem, as well as in the West Bank, given that there is a consensus on the 1967 borders, this hegemonic attitude, colonial attitude towards the Palestinians, expelling, uh, circulating, siege of Gaza, uh, that situation, uh, I mean, Israeli Jews are 6 million and Palestinians are almost are 6 million. Uh, I mean, uh, it's going to be very hard to maintain this status quo down, down the way, down the road, uh, given the type of situation uh, uh, in Palestine. The wall, uh, the sense of discrimination, marginalization, anger, no future, youth, unemployment, refugee camps. It's just not what Ramallah may look like. It's what the rest of Palestine also is experiencing, including uh, Palestinians uh, uh, inside uh, what became Israel in 1948, their territories, their lands, their internal refugees. So there are so many issues. So to run away and jump into the UAE is, uh, is a smart move, but uh, not extremely smart. It, it angers. It, 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 oh, there is a reaction. You see, you have to also look at this region in the context of uh, that the Arab world uh, is also aspiring for democracy, is aspiring for change. Uh, this is across the region, by the way. And uh, um, a leader can make an agreement, but it's not necessarily what's reflected in the region. I understand UAE has a small population, but even in that small population, you will have other opinion totally different, and yet it cannot be aired due to the repressive situation. Uh, now, when we see, say, the Gulf, it's not anymore the six GCC countries that make the Gulf Cooperation Council. So yes, Israel, on the one hand, came to the UAE. It will be associated more, a, a bigger state, a strong state, one of the strongest states in the Middle East, one of the most uh, uh, powerful armies uh, yet, uh, dealing with a small state that has uh, an ambitious project that is facing trouble as well. Uh, in Libya or in Yemen, even in Egypt, even in other areas, and trouble in the crisis with Qatar, because that wasn't, it was a very, uh, not, it had no logic to start with, and there were no bases for that crisis. 
but there could have been other motives as well. Uh, but it did not work. It, it failed totally. The siege of Qatar or the boycott of Qatar uh, failed completely, given that Qatar uh, continues, stands out. And yet, Kuwait stands out on the other side. It has elections. They're not perfect. Working on it, uh, it's in a transitional stage right now, uh, as it is discussing openly more issues of change, representation, uh, redrawing of districts, maybe redrawing of uh, uh, the election. Uh, so Kuwait, because it has a more popularly based base, legitimacy is more popular, it is able to say this agreement does not stand. This agreement with the UAE uh, should have been first with the Palestinians. And we've seen agreements with the Egyptians, with the Jordanians, but we've also seen what happens in Jordan. Jordan is very afraid, is very, feels un, not, not really stable with the, uh, with the agreement, feels that uh, going around the Palestinian right uh, means uh, this, this destabilizing Jordan at some point. There are those in the, in the, in the Israeli scene that keeps repeating that uh, uh, Jordan is a Palestinian state, which means they have intention to destabilize. So in a way, many people do see the destabilizing aspect of the UAE uh, uh, Israel agreement, and they do see that uh, while this happens, settlements continue. Uh, it's it's uh, one third of the Israeli budget goes to uh, goes to housing, goes one third of it to settlements. Uh, there are always announcements on new projects, uh, and that's Palestinian land. Uh, 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 not to say that uh, uh, all of Palestine is Palestinian land, and now it has become Israeli land, and Israel now dominates all of Palestine. And, and, and so that conflict will not go away. It will not go away. It will just only uh, take new shape, new uh, uh, aspects. Uh, it may uh, fine be regulated, uh, less violent, uh, uh, but the stories, the suffering, the marginalization, uh, the agonies, the pains, the, uh, the sense of exile the, uh, is very suffocating for Palestinians and for many Arabs who feel their pain as well, no matter what certain autocrats may be telling the Israeli political system, uh, left and right, that does not reflect. Nobody knew Mubarak is going to go suddenly. Nobody knew Gaddafi is going to disappear uh, suddenly. Nobody knew that there will be such a rebellion in Syria. Nobody was able to foresee what will happen. Nobody knew that one day when Israel attacked Lebanon and entered into a package with Lebanon and an agreement with, a, with another group in Lebanon, it will end up with Hezbollah. Uh, uh, and will end up with a much more radical group, even than the Palestine Liberation Organization, which was a legitimate national liberation group uh, uh, movement seeking seeking return, seeking uh, its uh, independence and national uh, uh, aspiration. Uh, uh, no matter what means it used, like everybody else has used these means, uh, uh, it was also facing the Israeli means, which were far more superior, inflicted more pain and destruction all over the space. So, so really, we need to realize, I mean, I do understand in the early 90s, we've had a process. The process was a peace process. And there was a lot of hope. I don't see now, at this moment, the same hope. I, I saw the hope in the early 90s, honestly, that when Baker and when Bush put everybody together and there was the Madrid uh, conference and then came Oslo and many people had a sense of optimism regarding that. But then an Israeli prime minister was assassinated in 1995 by the 
by uh, 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 an extremist. And, and from there on, the trust fell down. And also the settlements really never radically seriously stopped, but then they uh, advanced and advanced and advanced into what the condition of today. Today, Israel is an apartheid state. Now, you, you, don't, you may not like that, but it is an apartheid state. You look at this uh, situation, even you look at United Nations the resolutions in the last few years, you look at, uh, at, at uh, 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 human rights organizations from, uh, from, from, uh, from Israeli human rights all the way to, to international human rights organizations. There is a sense we have, not, we have entered an apartheid situation and we have entered a situation where Palestinians are saying, well, you have suffocated the Palestinian state you first committed for and you agreed to help process, help happen. And it didn't happen. And it doesn't seem it's going to happen. And all the conditions now are taking us into an apartheid situation and a state of resistance to that apartheid. So how will, how will this agreement hold when more, more uh, demonstrations take place, when Palestinians unite their act? Maybe this is one positive act. Actually, the most positive of this agreement, it has given the Palestinians a big wake up call. So if, you are, if that helps, then yes, it has given them a wake-up call. As a result of that, Hamas and Fatah are speaking. As a result of that, all organizations are speaking. As a result of that, you can see a Palestinian, uh, Palestinians uh, taking uh, more their uh, recovering, at least. I would say recovering from the, 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 the end of the, first, the second intifada with all the pain that really happened as a result. You know, the second intifada, uh, uh, was, was a big, big, it was a war between Israelis and Palestinians, but the pain and the uh, uh, assassinations and the, uh, the net result was a big loss for the Palestinians. Most of the main middle cadre that participated in that intifada was murdered or killed or assassinated or in prison. And yet the Palestinians are now recovering out of that. And I think they will go back into, into, into putting their movement uh, to, uh, it, it, it doesn't necessarily at all mean going back to the military approach. It will still be peaceful. It will still be, but it has to reflect the real pain and the real aspiration and the real need. And it has to look for allies, maybe within Israel, within the Jewish community in the world, within, within wherever it can in order to bring about a transformation. But what kind of transformation when this apartheid ends? Would it be one state or would it be two states? The struggle goes on, the stories goes, go on as long as there, are, there is pain, there is refugees, there is uh, uh, suffering that has not stopped in terms of property, in terms of existence, in terms of, I mean, the Palestinians at the end of the day were the ones thrown into the sea, thrown into the desert, not the Israelis. They were never really at a threat. And I know there is a narrative in Israel that it was a threat. There was never a threat. Even in 1948, King Abdullah was speaking with them. Even in 1950s, Nasser was trying to speak with them. Even in the early 50s, late 40s, Husni Zaim in Syria was trying to speak with them. Everybody was trying to speak. And I understand that from state to state relations, but the stories of people and agonies and suffering continues. And without addressing these issues, no peace will stand. And if it does, it is not a real peace, and it will only look a shadowy one uh, that is uh, up, to, up to point. Look at 1994. In the early uh, 90s, there were several offices, one in Qatar, one in the UAE, that really began a consulate for Israel, and, 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 and there was this exchange. And what happened? There was the Gaza war, and slowly everybody stopped. Uh, so so we, we are in a hard time. It's not an easy time for people. Uh, 
Uh, yet, I will tell you, this region is going through transition, transformation. The corona situation has complicated things much more. And as we get out of corona with the economies, with the uh, mismanagement of leaders, and we may have a big change in the White House uh, and, and, and some of those who carry this particular zeal to make these separate small deals uh, at the expense of the real issues, uh, uh, will not, may not be around, and th these policies may totally change. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you, Dr. Shafiq. Uh, thank you for confirming that um, Arab public opinion still regards this Palestinian issue as a very emotive issue, where, which, which also raises uh, anger in the general public. Um, but I have, a, I have two questions, really, for the rest of the, the panel before we proceed with uh, um, the 10 minutes statement uh, by Dr. Abdullah Babut. First, is this Palestinian issue still a priority in terms of national, nation, and the list of national priorities? Is this still a, is the Palestinian issue still a priority? That's the first question. And the second question is, is there a viable solution now for the Palestinians uh, now that the UAE Israel deal has, has penned to has penned down the fact that it's going to suspend annexation. So probably we can, we can start with Dr. Uh, Abdullah Babut to comment on this before we go around uh, the panel and then finally go back to your 10 minute. Dr. Babut. Um, okay, I thought you were asking the, the, the previous uh, speakers. Uh, so the question was, uh, is, is this, uh, could, could you repeat that? Sorry, I, yeah, I was- Is the Palestinian issue still a priority in the list of uh, national interests and, and, and priorities. And the second one is, is there a viable solution for the Palestinians now that the is is UAE-Israel deal has decided to suspend annexation? Right, I, I think um, there are two different ways of looking at this. First of all, uh, thank you very much, uh, Clemens, for uh, inviting me to this uh, distinguished panel. It's always a pleasure to be with you and uh, personally and with MEI uh, on MEI events and also with uh, uh, friends and colleagues uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this panel. Um, I, I guess uh, some of the topics I want to talk about has been covered by uh, my uh, colleagues uh, quite uh, uh, eloquently. But just to answer your, uh, your question is, uh, I, if you ask me whether the Palestinian issue is still as important as it, as it was, I think the real answer for that, it's not. Um, because there has been other issues, or there are lots of other issues that have now come on the table and you know, most of the Arab countries are struggling with uh, these issues, whether it is the pandemic now, but also, you know, the economic development, the interstate conflicts, um, the uh, rivalry and uh, competition between them, uh, uh, etc., and all this kind of reconfiguration of the Middle East. All of these things have become uh, as, as important as the Palestinian issue. But to say that it has completely gone, I think that will also be wrong. Because I think the Palestinian issue is still uh, uh, very much an important issue in the psyche of, uh, uh, of the people. Uh, and that's not because they are just simply Arabs or uh, Muslims or Christians, uh, but because also 
you know, what they see what is going on is unfair treatment to, uh, to the Palestinian people. Uh, so it, it does actually, um, from time to time, come, come up as a strong um, point in, in, in the psyche of the people. And, and it will not, not completely die away, but it's not as strong as it used to be uh, 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 in the past. And it depends, of course, on the circumstances. It could go up one or two uh, points, or it could go down, depending on what is, uh, what is going on. Is there a viable solution? Well, it's a, it's a very difficult question. Uh, I think uh, many people will, you know, will, uh, will have different views about this. And uh, I think there has been a lot of attempts at you know, finding a viable solution, whether it's a two-state solution um, or, or not, whether it's gonna be a one-state solution. It's very complex situation. I mean, that's what uh, one, one has to say. It's an extremely complex situation. And, uh, you know, trying to just ignore it and think this is, you know, it's gonna be uh, healed with time. I think that's also difficult. Uh, and I think that is wrong. You've got, um, you know, uh, as Shafiq uh, uh, was saying, you know, 6 million Palestinians um, living in these lands and under conditions that are almost inhuman, uh, you know, difficult in many ways and living under occupation, uh, they see their land being annexed all the time, uh, et cetera. And, and, that is, and that is in itself is wrong. And, you know, do you wanna give them uh, a state where they can, you know, aspire to have their own state and their own system, et cetera, et cetera, live side by side with Israel? Uh, is 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 one thing, and that is what I think the international community has been pushing for. Uh, or do you want to keep pushing and annexing land, and you know, doing what uh, the Israeli current Israeli government is doing, uh, and really kind of forcing the one-state solution uh, uh, at the end? And that is not good for the Israelis themselves, as some people would say. And it's not. I don't think the Palestinians also want it, although some of them might want. Uh, that as well, as long as you can, you can have a solution whereby uh, the six million people are treated as humans uh, and and have a nationality of a country and they have rights and obligations. Then I think the Palestinians are going to uh, accept that. I think it's the, ha the 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 ball is in the Israeli court, uh, uh, as it were, uh, to decide what do they want. And um, unfortunately, with the current government doesn't want to uh, do either and it's very uh, making it even more uh, complex and making definitely the two-state solution almost impossible and pushing it further towards the, 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 the one-state solution or stateless people. And, and that is, that is uh, uh, wrong and I think it is a very, as I said earlier on, it's a very complex situation and it is not going to go overnight. And, uh, you know, I don't think this even peace agreement with, with whatever it entails with, with, uh, with UAE is going to sort the core issue, the core problem. And I feel like I can get into that uh, later on in my presentation. Sure. sure. Thank you, Dr. Babut. Let's hear from Rabbi David Rosson on, on his views on, on this as well, on these questions. Thank you. Well, if you'd like to hear my response concerning the Palestinians, I think I'm the only one on the call who's actually living amongst the Palestinians. 
So I can tell you, despite the rhetoric generally of senior aged intellectuals who will tell you that the Palestinian population is reflected by Abu Mazen and by Hamas in terms of the rejectionists, that is not the case at all on the street. I think the vast majority of Palestinians are just fed up with their leadership, whether it's the PA, whether it's Abu Mazen, whether it's Hamas, they see them all as corrupt, their infighting and incapacities to come together is what causes the distress. Most Palestinians feel that the Second Intifada failed them because it persuaded Israelis that there isn't a partner for peace and therefore all the opportunities that were there were lost and that they are ultimately the victims of their own leadership. In fact, I'm surprised at how many Palestinians see the UAE-Israel Accord in a positive light and out of total frustration with their own leadership are hopeful that influences from the Gulf might be able to improve their lot and the conditions of their life. There's a feeling amongst the Palestinian street that Abu Mazen's rejection of Olmert was a big mistake, that violence all the time uh, only is counterproductive, and that Israelis are more, in fact, intransigent, which is the case, precisely as a reaction to this reaction. And proof of the fact is that 20% of Israeli society are Arab Muslims who have full citizen rights. And therefore the idea of apartheid is rather a silly concept when you look at that reality in terms of what Israel is. But I would say that Palestinians are very frustrated, very frustrated with essentially traditional Arab policy and are hopeful that there might be a new horizon here. And I'm hopeful that there might be a new horizon which will alleviate the Palestinian situation because their present leadership is not capable of delivering that for them. And that's a great tragedy for them. I certainly believe a two-state solution is still feasible, but even if we come to a situation where we have some kind of cantonized structure, that would be the case. The vast majority of Israelis want a strong Jordan, they want a strong Egypt, they want neighbors which they can rely on, and the result of the Abraham Accord has given people some kind of optimism, and I think even amongst Palestinian society. Thank you, Rabbi David. Uh, do we have uh, any further comments from Sigurd and Dr. Shafiq before we move on to the 10-minute statement by Dr. Babut? Anything you would like to add from... I'll just add one, one point, and that is that um, even the UAE, um, in how it presented its, um, its peace or normalization process with, with Israel, framed its cooperation um, with Israel <clears throat> as beneficial to the Palestinians. We see that Qatar, Oman, is also framing its uh, engagement with Israel as uh, supportive of the Palestinian-Israeli uh, peace process. And I think that that illustrates that even if, as our friend uh, Dr. Abdullah said, even if the Palestinian issue is, is, um, <clears throat> is an important issue, it's not the only issue anymore, but it is certainly uh, the issue that the various governments uh, present to justify their own strategic cooperation with, with Israel. And I think that that's very important to understand. And uh, my own view um, is that um, the Abrahamic Accord actually uh, left the door open for a two-state solution precisely because it took annexation off the table. Um, whether or not that will entice the Israelis and the Palestinians to engage in direct negotiations, we don't know yet. But I, I will say that from that point of view, it was a positive step, uh, even if there can be many misgivings about how the UAE operates as a regional actor and how it operates with its own Arab neighbors. And there are lots of question marks around that when it comes to the narrow 
uh, focus on preventing annexation, I think that, that that's a positive aspect going forward um, for revitalizing uh, any efforts to, uh, to bring the two-state solution alive. Thank you. Dr. Shafiq, yeah, I, any last comments? Yes, we'd like to. Um, I mean, uh, I will uh, comment on the uh, rabbi's comment as well, if uh, that is okay. Is that, uh, uh, I mean, the rabbi lived in South Africa, knows what apartheid is, lived in Ireland, knows what conflict is, uh, has uh, a background, uh, I'm not, I, I think was born in the UK, uh, and uh, the, I, right, and maybe you have activated the law of return to come back to, to, uh, uh, to what you consider your country, while a Palestinian who was born in Palestine and is in exile now cannot activate the law of return to go back to any part or section of Palestine, cannot even visit it. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an irony. I mean, and I know you know the sufferings of others. I know you live, you, you, you talk, but it's very hard for you to be able to talk on behalf of the Palestinians in, in such a, a complex situation. I know there are uh, Palestinians who are critical of the authority or critical of Hamas, but this is their leadership. It's like there are many Israelis who are critical of Netanyahu. He happens to be the leader of the Israelis at this point, right wing, uh, problematic. Uh, uh, you may have a prime minister from the extreme, extreme right, which I think rising uh, like uh, uh, several parties that today have that uh, potential. Nobody will choose anybody's leader for them. Uh, yes, Abu Mazen is illegitimate from, uh, for Palestinians, despite uh, uh, the difficulty. The economy is extremely difficult in the West Bank. It's totally Israeli-controlled. It's totally export-import, uh, uh, normal life, uh, the settlements. I mean, 60% uh, of the land is not really under Palestinian control. You cannot build a viable situation. Yet Palestinians will build something, will manage. They exist. Uh, they will, uh, their nationalism is solid. And, and, and therefore, uh, uh, yes, they, they, many Palestinians will uh, uh, respect all the Arab countries, including the UAE, but it doesn't mean they agree with this agreement. They feel it's, uh, it's, it's let them down. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, they, uh, they realize that they need, uh, they're not happy with the division between Hamas and Fatah. So Hamas is there, Fatah is there, there'll be new ones coming, like in every situation. The young, the generations, the young generations want to live in, 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 in peace, but they want to live with justice, respect, dignity, aspirations. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you can't be thrown from your home in, in East Jerusalem because you happen to be an Arab. You can't be a 20% of the population in proper Israel, the, the quote-unquote only democracy, but not really the only democracy. It's a democracy for an ethnic group. Judaism, Jews who have created an Israeli nationality. And I do see the Israeli nationality being created in the process. But, but what's the situation? You are, you are, an un, you are a Muslim in a, in, a, in, a, in a Zionist Jewish state that has the nationality law that tells you, you I mean, you're, you're not really, and, and that's problematic. Uh, one day this will, will have to change and it will only happen when marginalized people raise their voice. Even in the USA, marginalized people are raising their voice regarding equality, discrimination, uh, uh, what happened uh, uh, in Minnesota in the beginning. I mean, that's, and, and that's in the USA, which has a much 
better, much more amazing, positive human rights record, relatively speaking, when you compare it with Israel. Israel doesn't have a positive uh, human rights uh, uh, record, given the way it has treated the indigenous population over the years. And it's not true. Abu Mazen rejected, Abu Mazen rejected. That's not true. There was never, never a real offer to the Palestinians along the lines of the June fourth borders by which the Palestinians agreed after a long suffering and a long way to partition in that context. There was never a real, a, a real offer. Uh, no, neither in Camp David with President Clinton, never. Read, read Bob Malley, read, uh, uh, read uh, Hussein Agha, read other, other members who were there. You will see it's much more controversial. And, and it was uh, always, you see, the US has always had a blind eye towards uh, 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 Israel. That has been a problem. And, and uh, with this administration in particular, we have the lowest trust. I mean, there is not only a blind eye, it's, it's, it's all the eyes I blind uh, with, with Mr. Kushner and with the President Trump. It's, it's a one-sided. And you cannot be a broker. You cannot even be an, an acceptable broker to produce peace when you are one-sided. It will not work. You can have a wishful thinking about it working, but it will not work. So we are. In, in, in this, Palestinians genuinely want to see an end to the apartheid. And forget the leadership. Let's talk about the base. Let's talk about Maslow's, Maslow's uh, uh, needs. Let's talk about uh, human suffering. Let's talk about uh, what people want. They want to travel. They want to live normal. They want to go and come. But they want political rights. They also want human civil rights. They want all their rights. They don't want their prisoners thrown for ages, strike after strike, 6,000 of them in Israeli uh, jails. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not this today. There is no Israeli declerk. And you're telling me maybe there is no Palestinian Mandela, but I will tell you, tell you that President Abbas and even Hamas, you've been negotiating with Hamas all along between all these wars, between 2.8 and 2.14. There has been on these cease, I mean, war is maybe negotiation in a different way, but at, the, at least people have been able to come to grips into the, 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 the limits of, of militarism and, and military. And that's where you had in, in, in the Gaza Strip under siege, under human conditions that are, you, you are not estimating the time bomb in Gaza. You are not estimating the suffering of people in Gaza to the point where there are now two generations that are not even uh, in a normal situation under total siege, can travel, can go, can see the world, can manage. I mean, we're lucky there is, the there is this, the social media, right. but besides that, they are totally encircled. And, and yet, and, and thank you, Dr. Shafiq. I'm not able to debate the Palestinian issue with you. Obviously, I disagree with almost everything you've said. I was asked simply whether the Palestinians, what the Palestinian attitude was. And I would tell you the Palestinian attitude is not that of Abu Mazen and of Hamas. And with regards to the suffering and the desire to resolution, the vast majority of Israeli would like to do that. They're suffering too. You completely ignore, therefore, the, the dimension of it. There's a situation to resolve, but it's not a question of apartheid. Apartheid is when you deny people their civil liberties on the basis of the color of their skin. Here, this is a security issue, where Israel is proven by the fact that its citizens have full rights regardless of race, color, creed, but the situation with regards to the West Bank and Gaza is totally different. Why? Why is it totally different from the situation with regards to the Arabs within Israeli society? Because it's not an apartheid issue. It's an issue to do with security and threat and perceptions of their own particular viability. So you can criticize Israel policy. You can say it's wrong, perfectly legitimate to do so. But it's not coming out of a desire to oppress people because of the color of the skin or their ethnicity or their religion. That's why the term is wrong. Thank you. Thank you both uh, for the interest of time. Let us allow me one to... sentence. I mean, 
Rabbi David, look into it. It's not about the color of the skin. We are colored in a certain way. We are third world. We are, uh, we, 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 we are uh, Muslims and Arabs and Christians on, in the Holy Land, and we've been treated in the way any colonial settler would treat people. There are more Israeli blacks than there are Palestinians. Read all the books, Israeli books. Read Tom Segev, even. Okay, on, thank uh, you both. I think we can agree to disagree for now. Uh, in the interest of time, we will move to Dr. Babut's 10-minute uh, comment. Uh, Dr. Babut, if I could ask you, based on the UAE-Israel deal that we had been talking about, could you tell us a bit about the reactions by Oman, Bahrain, and Qatar, considering each has their own relationship with Israel? Um, what are the perceptions at the state and local levels? Uh, I know we talked a bit about this being an emotive issue, but what, what is your, your, your general assessment of, of, of what's going on between what is the people in government and the people on the ground? Please, Dr. Babu, you have the floor. Oh, thank you, Clemens. I was uh, actually uh, interested in, in hearing the debate uh, uh, between the rabbi and, uh, and Shafiq. But uh, if, if you uh, ask me to speak about this, I want to start by just dispelling some of the misperceptions, if you like, uh, that we all hold uh, a different side of this conflict. Um, one of those perceptions is that um, uh, the Arabs, the Muslims hate the Jews or the Israelis. And I think that perception has to be debated uh, as well. And they don't want to accept Israel. I think that is also wrong. Um, uh, you know, one other misperception is that uh, because of my own security, I don't care about the others. And I don't care about human rights, and I don't care about what you know, uh, international rights, etc., uh, and and other humanities. Um, the other perception is that you know might is right, and as long as I am uh, strong and powerful, and I've got the United States support behind me, I can do whatever I want. And you know those. Perception that misperceptions, and there are many, I won't uh, get into them all, um, do actually kind of color the, the picture. Um, just to correct a few things is that um, the Arabs have already, uh, all of them, all the Arab countries have already accepted the state of Israel. And the Arab peace plan in 2002, with all its uh, you know, positives and negatives, have been put there, which basically says, you know, we will accept Israel, we accept Israel, we want to have normalization with Israel in all aspects, uh, as long as there is, of course, uh, uh, if they meet, you know, certain international agreed uh, principles. Now we can discuss those details, but the principle is that it's, it's already there. Uh, it's, it's been accepted. Um, and there is no problem between an Arab and Israeli, uh, 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 Jewish and Muslim, uh, or Jewish and Christian Arab. There is no problem uh, uh, with, with, the, uh, with the race itself or the religion itself. There is a problem with the Israeli policies. And that is, that is really what we really need talking about. And 
uh, again, um, in a way to answer to uh, what uh, uh, Rabbi David had mentioned is that, you know, there is no one people or there's no people, there are no people who just uh, blindly follow their own uh, government or like their own government. I mean, look at the United States and look how the population in the United States and look how they look at uh, Donald Trump uh, and Israel itself. And uh, Mahmoud Abbas or Ismail Haniyeh are not necessarily different from, uh, from that. They have their own faults. What we are talking about is the people in the region. The people in the region now have had enough conflicts, have had enough wars and devastating relationships that are affecting the whole region from east to west. People wanna live together, they wanna, uh, they wanna trade, they wanna travel. The Israelis wanna be part of this uh, uh, region and the Arabs want to be also, you know, be able to go to Israel and visit and visit Palestine, Palestine, uh, uh, etc. So there is this aspiration of the people is that where we really need to think about. We need the paradigm shift in the way that we think about the conflict and the, and the way that we think that, you know, our security is guaranteed. There is no country that is secured in the world more than Israel with all its arsenal of equipment and you know, weapons, et cetera. Um, and I don't think all the Arab countries and the Muslim countries combined can even you know, create a threat to, to Israel. And that is already uh, uh, accepted. Israel is already the only nuclear power in the region. Uh, uh, what people want is the right for the Palestinians. What what are their rights? What is Israel going to accept? And I think if there was anything that was given to the Palestinian leadership that is meaningful, I think any leadership, not only the Palestinian leadership, would bite the hands that gives them that. But nothing was given substantially or uh, reasonably to allow, to allow that. That's not to say that you know, there are problems with the Palestinian leadership. Obviously there is, and we all accept that. I even tweeted about it yes, last night. You know, how bad is that Palestinian leadership is. Um, and now I want to move to the topic that you, uh, uh, that, that you asked me, having just uh, clarified this. I think what is going on, um, and, and especially the, the, uh, the Abraham uh, Accord, any peace, any movement towards peace is obviously welcome. Um, but however, we need to understand whether this is really going to help uh, peace? Or is it just a tactical uh, uh, game for the benefit of one party or the other? Um, and it could actually have uh, the, the wrong consequences, uh, if you like. United Arab Emirates and Israel are not at war. There are no Gulf countries at war with Israel. And there, is, there are already many uh, uh, relationships at, at my uh, friend and uh, colleague, uh, uh, Sigurd Nibord, had, had just uh, explained in, in, in his book and his presentation. The relationship goes back to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. It's clandestine, it's under the table, some of it at least, but some of it was uh, over the table and there have been meetings and during uh, and official meetings and visits and during after the Oslo Accord and the Madrid process, 
uh, you saw that there were, you know, uh, visits by Israeli prime minister to uh, the region and inter recently to Oman. And uh, even trade offices uh, hoping to open embassies were opened. And there were signals to Israelis, to, these, uh, to the Israeli public, to the Israeli government, that look, we want peace and we mean it. We just move on on this, uh, on this process. Unfortunately, for one reason or the other, it hasn't uh, uh, moved on. And it's all under the guise of Israeli security, which I, it doesn't uh, bite anymore, uh, unfortunately, with all respect. Now, uh, what happened with the, uh, the Abraham Accord is, is basically, you know, you can call it a peace process. You could call it a, a peace agreement. And as I said, the two countries are not at war. So it's a misnomer to call it a peace uh, process. It is, it is a marriage of convenience for what Israel wants to have a breakthrough in its relationship, especially the current government, breakthrough with its relationship with Arab countries. So the Netanyahu can you know, uh, say, look, you know, I've done it. And it's the United Arab Emirates uh, that wants, you know, sees itself, sees it uh, has a, a different role than, uh, or a major role that it wants to play in the region in a region that is at the moment in a state of flux, in a region that are really kind of plagued by conflicts, etc., And there is a vacuum uh, in the region in terms of leadership with Saudi Arabia not being the kind of the traditional leader that it used to be. Egypt has lost its leadership role, etc. So, and the United States, there is a talk about this, you know, quote unquote, withdrawal from the region, uh, etc. So there is, there's a vacuum uh, uh, in the region. And the United Arab Emirates thinks that it can actually fill in uh, uh, that region. And because of that vacuum, we have seen countries like Iran having uh, its, if you like, influence in the region. We've seen countries like Turkey uh, coming in into the region. And now we are seeing Israel um, uh, kind of an alliance with, uh, with the uh, United Arab Emirates uh, under the, you know, the rubric of the Abraham Accord. And I, I kind of wonder if this is really going to help peace. I hope it does. And I, you know, I'll be great if, uh, it'll be great if it, if it did. It might push the Palestinians more towards reconcili reconciliating their own differences, uh, uh, whether that will, you know, push them towards peace or make them more, uh, uh, if you like, uh, stronger. That's, that's for the future to tell. But um, it is, you know, the involvement in, uh, of Israel in the region, especially in the Gulf, could actually complicate uh, the already muddied picture. Uh, you know, we, as I said, we already have lots of uh, regional powers, and here is another regional power becoming uh, much more entangled. And it could be devastating, in fact, for, for, for Israel uh, as well. Because uh, I think the last thing Israel wants to do is, is you know, go on beyond its borders and, and, and get trapped into other regional conflicts uh, in the region. It has enough on its plate, uh, 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 as it were. Uh, but in, in, in this kind of very uh, muddied, if you like, uh, regional uh, alliances that are being built one way or the other, the United States pushing for one direction or the other, we've seen that Israel is now uh, coming in 
uh, adding another dimension to, uh, to, to the situation. And uh, one can understand what the United Arab Emirates has done. Uh, it, wants, it wants a strong partner. The, Israel is a very important, uh, regional, strong, uh, militarily, uh, technologically, uh, in terms of science and technology, et cetera, um, uh, and, and security. It could see that this is, you know, uh, it's something that it, it could help me. There is, as uh, my friend and colleague Sigot had also mentioned, this, uh, it helps the inter-Gulf uh, rivalry uh, that is taking place uh, between all the, uh, the members of the Gulf states in one way or the other. Um, and it was aptly um, described by uh, Sigge uh, earlier on. So it, 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 you know, it sees that it, it has created an, an alliance uh, uh, or a, a very strong ally uh, that it could help it in this kind of uh, uh, rivalry in one, on one hand, but it could also, uh, again, as explained by Sigi, it helps it in its relationship in Washington, D.C. That maybe is the, uh, the, the real reason. If there was a secondary, if you like, if a, uh, reason for this, which is the peace, that would be welcome. But I don't think that is the issue. And I, I don't think the Palestinians, uh, either the leadership or the public in general, uh, from what we see, have, have welcomed this. Now, when it comes to the regional countries, uh, uh, as I said earlier, you know, they already had a relationship with Israel. Apart from Kuwait, all the Gulf states have that. Uh, one way or the other at different levels, and they have cooperation with Israel. Uh, you know, that cannot be denied. Um, now, we've seen that the euphoria that initially came up after the signing or the announcement of the peace process has actually died down. Um, even in Saudi Arabia, that opened its borders, uh, if you like, or airspace for the Israeli uh, plane, to fly over, they kept saying that it, it had to be a comprehensive peace and it has to relate to the Arab peace plan. So they have not thrown their, uh, if you like, their weight uh, uh, with it. Although one can say that perhaps, you know, they are waiting for the right moment. And I think this goes for all the Arab Gulf states. They are waiting to see what kind of consequence this is going to happen. Even Bahrain and Oman that initially supported uh, the Abraham uh, Accord, they actually uh, uh, now slowed down. Uh, and basically, uh, the, the last announcement that they are supporting the Arab peace plan. So I think we, it's very difficult to tell where is this going to go. I think there is a test, uh, or, or the United Arab Emirates is taking this test to see how the public reaction, how regional reaction is going to be. And I can tell you from what I hear, it's mixed. But I think it's mainly against the deal because they don't see it as really pushing towards, uh, towards peace. If you cannot sort out the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue and you know, um, the issue about an, uh, stopping Israel and, and annexing the line is debatable. Whether Netanyahu is going to go for that or not is also uh, was, was, was debatable. Uh, but it does not say anything about Palestinian rights. It does not say anything about, uh, uh, you know, Palestinian state, uh, 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 etc. So the public opinion in general, although, you know, there are no uh, public opinion polls uh, here that one can 
rely on. But from what you hear in the media and, 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 and so on, I think the people are totally against uh, the deal because they don't see it as a means to pushing uh, the peace. And the peace, if it comes, will be by, by product and it'll be just uh, uh, another thing uh, that, uh, another outcome that wasn't, uh, that wasn't planned. So yes, I think in Bahrain, in Qatar, uh, in uh, Oman, in general, there was, especially in Bahrain and Oman, they were uh, initially kind of uh, a support for it, but it, it died down uh, because the public are, are against it. And I think the region is still uh, against it. And I, uh, I think this is, you know, it, it does not really offer uh, anything that is uh, suitable. For Israel, you know, they can, they can show that this is, uh, they have been able to, so a, a real breakthrough uh, for the Netanyahu government that he can uh, be proud of and, uh, and to say that, look, I see what I've done. My policies are right. I can do whatever I want to the Palestinians. The Arabs don't care. Uh, and I've just, you know, signed a peace and the others are coming online. I think that is wrong. I think it's just, um, you know, going the wrong way. Uh, and I will conclude by saying, if I allow me, Clemens, by saying, everybody wants peace. I think we are all sick and tired of this. We all want peace and security and stability uh, and prosperity in the region. And that con can only come through peace. And we want to coexist. We want to live together. We want to trade. We want to uh, uh, mix with each other. And there is no you like inherited uh, 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 hatred within uh, the people. But there is one issue that we cannot ignore, however we want to ignore it, and that is the plight of the Palestinian people. Unless that is resolved, you know, all these uh, tactical moves here or there are not going to help uh, the situation. I hope they do, but I don't think so. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Abdullah Baboud. Uh, just to add on to your earlier comment about the public opinion, I have with me um, sort of a summary of a Middle East public opinion poll done by James, Dr. James Zogby of the president of the Arab American Institute. And he conducted a, a poll in 2018 where about um, the feelings of citizens feelings by citizens in Saudi Arabia and the UAE about uh, the Palestinian issue. And it seems that um, roughly 60% of respondents in both countries said they oppose partnering with Israel against Iran, even if Israel ends occupation and signs a peace deal with the Palestinians. So it's sort of a statistic that we have here. Uh, but let us now invite uh, Rabbi David Rawson to give his five to 10 minutes remarks. Uh, could you comment on the degree of cooperation in the Gulf with Jewish communities and how that plays into informal relations with Israel? Of course, we've seen um, how religious inclusiveness has been a theme. And one prime example is Pope Francis' uh, landmark visit to the UAE and following which the UAE's decision to establish an interfaith council known as the Higher Committee of Human Fraternity. So will we see this trend continuing? And how can interfaith relations spill over into more formal forms of 
diplomacy. We've also seen that uh, Israel scored two diplomatic gains when uh, majority Muslim Kosovo agreed to recognize Israel. And also we've seen how Serbia has said that it would move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Both are US uh, brokered deals, by the way. But uh, just to get your uh, views on these and your comments, thank you. I will indeed, but I think your comment immediately after Dr. Abdullah finished was important. You noted the survey that showed that regardless of whether Israel establishes a peace treaty with the Palestinians, there is still hostility and there's still opposition. So you have confirmed that with your data. Now that's really important because Dr. Abdullah's own particular view may be very noble and very positive, but I think he has a rather generous view of the Arab world as a whole. Between December, from December 2008 to 2001 to 2019, one of the most important hate monitoring organizations went to book fairs in Doha, Abu Dhabi, Kuwait City, Muscat, Jeddah, and Cairo. In every single one of these instances, they found numerous examples of anti-Semitic books through online platforms and apparently on site as well. They included Hitler's Mein Kampf, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the International Jew, and even copies of Mein Kampf and International Jew were listed in the catalog under children's books. I mean, we can go on with this. It is absolutely naive at best to conclude that there is no anti-Semitism and hostility towards as Jews qua Jews within the Arab world and within the Gulf as a whole. Now, you could say, and I think that's a legitimate argument, that were it not to be for the political conflicts, this might have not erupted. And maybe a hundred years ago, it was different. Even then, I think that's deluding ourselves because even though the condition of Jews was much better under Islam than it was under Christianity, Jews still had to know their place. And the perception of the Jew as devious, as suspicious, as somebody untrustworthy, all the negative stereotypes prevail. And I encounter it when I travel within the Arab Muslim world and I travel extensively. Now, I think that the UA-Israel Accord is really significant in terms of changing those perceptions. We will see more tourism, more cooperation. We will overcome those stereotypes and negative perceptions. And I believe that will redound also to Palestinians' advantage. But it's simply not true to say our only problem is with Israel and we love Jews. In fact, look at now Sudais of the mosque in, um, in Saudi Arabia, who it didn't even refer specifically to the Abraham Accord, but simply referred to some positive attitudes of the prophet towards Jews. He received incredible vitriol and condemnation for preparing the way for some kind of reconciliation with Israel. And if you look online and you see what kind of language was used against him, let alone against Jews, it's what you would call anti-Semitic. So I think there is something far more serious that needs to be addressed than simply to pass it away and say, we love Jews, they're fine. It's only Israel we have a problem with. At any rate, now getting specifically to what you asked me to address, um, interfaith initiatives tend to come first and foremost from minorities who want to be understood and accepted by a majority. And sometimes you have within civil society, which is not widespread within the Arab world, uh, and indeed in, not widespread perhaps throughout the whole of the world, but there are civil societies where people want to advocate for tolerance and for social cohesion, and therefore they will see interfaith relations as an important vehicle in order to advocate for that. But 
it requires a certain amount of self-confidence and curiosity, and this has not generally been forthcoming. Uh, the engagement with Jews on the part of Arab Muslim countries uh, has been primarily within the framework of broader interfaith involvement in the wake of September the 11th, 2001. And uh, the consequences of the emergence of Al-Qaeda and of radical extremism uh, were, were, of course, very serious, first and foremost, for the image of the Arab Muslim world and a recognition that there was a need to be able to address this image problem. Of course, first and foremost, there had to be the question of counterterrorism, and these countries invested heavily in this. And you saw initiatives coming from the UAE, like the Hadaya program and others to, in terms of counterterrorism. But an understanding that there was a need to be able to reach out and interfaith for a few reasons. First of all, to deal with the image issue. Secondly of all, to be able to uh, advance the leverage of soft power, recognizing not everything is in hard power. There was also a need to be able to find alliances with the West. There is this myth that Jews have some dis, uh, disproportionate influence and therefore a good relationship with Jews can help that. But the relationship was not necessarily specifically bilateral. It was more within a broader interfaith initiative. And there you had this amazing uh, move of the uh, late King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz from Saudi Arabia in terms of his whole initiative for interfaith dialogue uh, that he uh, initiated in 2004, I think it was, that he began this particular direction. Uh, but And the UAE came in a little bit later. It wasn't really till 2014 that they founded with uh, the leadership of Sheikh Abdullah bin Bea this forum for the promotion of peace in Muslim lands, and then their important Marrakesh Charter uh, that in 2016 based upon the Charter of Mecca of the Prophet Muhammad, and then the Alliance of Virtue. There are now three different ministries in the UAE working in the interfaith scene, and this involves the Jewish community very significantly. Is the Jewish community a specific goal of these interfaith initiatives? It's certainly one of them. It's not the only goal, but it's certainly one of them. And there have been more and more Jewish involvement. There's many more rabbis, scholars, participating in interfaith colloquia and meetings in uh, the UAE. You may know that I, uh, just uh, before COVID broke out, I was the first rabbi and certainly the first Israeli to be invited by Saudi Arabia and to meet with King Salman I, within the context of an interfaith framework. In other words, it's not specifically because I'm from Israel. It's, however, the fact that I am from Israel and that I am a rabbi does not disqualify me. That's a big change. And that is a reflection, as I say, of the factors I mentioned before. And um, of a, also a recognition and a desire, whether it was in, in Saudi Arabia at its own pace, but in the UAE at a much more rapid pace, that there is a need to change attitudes within the country. And even what I was referring to before about the rampant anti-Semitism as a result of the conflict over the last 100 years has to be addressed too. And that the more there is engagement with the Jews, the more positive this will impact internally on society. There's also recognition that anti-Semitism is the most dangerous label in terms of their global interests. And if they can be seeing countries to have a positive attitude towards Jews, this will help their image as well. In other words, all these things come together. And um, I think, therefore, the uh, not for nothing was the accord called the Abraham Accord. There is a recognition that the interfaith relationship and specifically the bilateral interfaith relationship which will now flourish far more extensively is really important in providing if you like again the soft context and support 
for political and diplomatic initiatives. And I think we'll see an increasing use of this dimension uh, under the, with, with, if you like, the kind of rubric of back to the future, images of the, the past, uh, constructive relationships between the Muslim and Jewish and Christian world. In fact, when I, we had this meeting with King Salman, he said something very interesting. He said, Islam is an, um, uh, an open, embracing and tolerant religion. We in Saudi Arabia were forced by political circumstances to become more insular and isolationist. We are now finding our way back to our original ethos. That's quite fascinating. Whether you accept this historical analysis or not, doesn't matter. What matters is that this is the line that is coming out and it's the line that Mohammed bin Zayed is also pushing uh, through these different operations. Uh, as I mentioned, the one through uh, the Forum for Peace in Arvan, through Abdullah bin Bayer, now the head of the Supreme Fatwa Council, the Interfaith uh, Action Council, which deals with combating hate and promoting child welfare in the digital age coming out of the UAE Ministry Interior, as well as the Ministry of Tolerance, which of course had the Year of Tolerance, and with regards to the papal visit and the establishing now of the House of Abraham, where they will be building for the first time, at least in, in memory, in recent memory, a new synagogue within the Arab Muslim world, together with a church and a mosque in Abu Dhabi. This, of course, is symbolic. But symbolism is very significant here. And that symbolism is essentially the constructive use of religion to create an atmosphere at which diplomatic understanding, collaboration, and cooperation is made more feasible. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi David, for your comments. Um, so we will be open for Q&A. So please do send us your questions through the chat box. Um, let me just start with two questions and I will probably go back to, to Sigurd here so that he could, he could address these two questions first and, and also touching on the fact that uh, Rabbi David mentioned the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, the first question is, could you tell us if, if the UAE-Israel deal has allowed the UAE to reinforce its international profile as a forward-looking Arab state from Washington's eyes? So from Washington's point of view, and the second question, what next for Saudi Arabia? Of course, it was the, it was, it was the one who launched the, the API back, back then. But what next when, when, we, when we talk about this Abraham Accord? Would they, I mean, of course, Prince Turki and King Salman has, have, have uh, reaffirmed its support for the Palestinian cause, but what next? So I have these two questions that we'll probably run through the panel, and we'll start with uh, Sigurd. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the question. I think it's important to recognize that um, this is not a zero-sum conversation, uh, whereas um, Rabbi David is, of course, uh, correct about all the positive aspects um, related to uh, Jewish engagement with the United Arab Emirates. And, um, and I think that there is a genuine interest, not just in the UAE, but across the Gulf, there's a genuine, uh, genuine interest in, in, in Jewish uh, issues, whether it's culture, whether it's exchange, or whether it's uh, geopolitics. I think that that is, that is true, and it's something that is growing. Um, so this is not where the criticism of the United Arab Emirates comes in. Uh, where the criticism of the United Arab Emirates comes in in Washington is um, um, a transfer of advanced veterinary obtained uh, from the United States uh, to uh, various militias operating in Yemen and in um, um, and in Libya, 
Um, it is about uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the blockade of Qatar, which of course complicated President Trump's regional agenda, which was to form a unified Arab Islamic bloc against Iran uh, to, to, to pressure Iran to come to the negotiations table and re um, negotiate the JCPOA. So the United States has spent uh, almost uh, four years um, trying to uh, resolve this inter-Gulf dispute. And it's important to understand that um, the military threat against Qatar was real. It was not imagined. Um, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia had tried to invade Qatar and uh, uh, dragging in pro-Israel groups against into this inter-Arab struggle was extraordinary was extraordinary destabilizing from an American perspective. Um, so I think that that these are the issues that the reasons that United Arab Emirates uh, faced significant pushback and and anger, if you will, um, in Washington, including in the Trump administration. So by normalizing uh, uh, relations with Israel, um, it is uh, getting back on its feet and it gets to have a positive image in the international public opinion. Forget about people who are political, who are engaging in political uh, motivated criticism of the agreement, whether it's a, it's good or not. But, but I think that that's the hard geopolitical aspect of it. Um, when it comes to inter-Jewish uh, dialogue in the Gulf, I think that's positive. I think that um, people who want to have dialogue um, should, um, should move forward. I think that uh, one cannot be beholden to negative voices and and uh, negative criticism. But I think that uh, we have to look at the broader shift taking place in the Gulf and, and diplomacy and inter-Arab struggles cannot just be ignored while we're celebrating uh, the UAE um, Israel normalization process. Uh, the inter-Arab struggles are unfortunately the, the other side of that coin. And, and I do think that, and going back to my initial point, I think that Israel has uh, responded to these changes in a, in a responsible manner, understanding fully well what is transpiring in the Gulf and that there is a potential great power, power rivalry um, in the Gulf and, and to ensure that the Gulf um, maintains its uh, cohesion within the, the tremendous difficult environment that is there and, and, and at the same time um, leaving the door open for inter-Palestinian Israeli uh, peace talks. So all of these things are, are complicating the situations, but I do think that um, one point that is very important to emphasize, and, and, and maybe my friend uh, uh, Shafiq will agree with, uh, disagree with this, but within the Gulf arena, Israel is the only non-Gulf actor that is acceptable to both sides of the GCC uh, dispute. Turkey and Iran, for the obvious reasons, are not. And Israel, um, because it has played a stabilizing role, um, it's, it's just a partner that one has to embrace. It's a difficult one to embrace for, for the reasons that we discussed um, uh, because of the uh, unresolved Palestinian issue. But, but it, is a part, it is a party in the Gulf dispute. It is a party that um, the various Gulf countries have to uh, have to deal with, but but to just focus on the positive aspects of of um, of the UAE Israel deal is, is is one thing, but but I do think that the Israeli government understands quite clearly what is happening in the Gulf and it is exercising its responsibility in that arena very cautiously. This is the first point. The second point I want to add is that 
it is the Trump administration that has really pushed Gulf-Israel ties for its own political purposes, as opposed to the Israelis driving that agenda. Um, the Israelis have dealt with the ups and downs of Gulf-Israel ties for the past 30 plus years and understand the dynamics well. I think it is the Trump administration who would like to see as many quote unquote Gulf-Israel normalization deals as possible for their own political purposes without necessarily um, taking a long view on how to build a lasting Arab-Israeli peace. And while these um, things fluctuate, I think that it's extremely positive that all of the Gulf states engage with, with uh, the Jewish community and, and try to establish human-to-human -human relations that eventually will help the process moving forward uh, to a lasting Arab-Israeli peace. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Shafiq, if you could unmute. Yeah. Well, uh, so many things uh, have been uh, said. Uh, I would uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, focus on uh, that this agreement uh, stands on uh, the wrong uh, leg, the wrong uh, feet. It, did not, it does not address any of the issues. Gulf countries um, are divided. Uh, the fact that some Gulf countries uh, have uh, uh, agreed uh, or uh, looked at they are flexible is from too much U.S. pressure and I will warn that too much, yes, too much pressure on countries in the Arab world will backfire and I guarantee you it will backfire at some point. It plays into the hands of Iran and Turkey as well. We have regional competitors who also speak about the question of Palestine. Both Turkey and Iran have a stake in that as well, given the situation as it evolved. I do understand that Israel once had a perfect relation with Turkey and a more perfect relation with Iran. And I see that today they don't have that. It's much less with Turkey, not like before, but it's, it's, it went to the opposite with Iran. And I remember when Israel was able to enter Lebanon, while many people in Lebanon then hope that maybe the Israelis will rid them of uh, the situation, particularly in South Lebanon. And I recall when the Israeli army entered, there were people who were maybe happy that this may end all wars and all situation. And how did the Israelis leave South Lebanon with Hezbollah confronting them and liberating their land uh, rightfully, uh, uh, like anybody liberating, like the French resistance liberated their land uh, from Nazi occupation. Uh, so I want to tell you that the image of Israel in the region is that of uh, uh, a state that is a, a rouge state. It's a state that doesn't care about international law. It doesn't stand up, uh, in relation. It, it started with an original sin. You want to call this anti-Semitism? It is not. When you kick an entire nation, an entire population, that's not. That's anti-Arab. That's anti-Muslim. That's anti-native. It's not anti-Semitism. There is no anti-Semitism per se, unless we, we always talk about minorities have an issue always all over the world. I mean, you can say anti, I mean, whites, anti-black, you can say uh, black lives matter, but we, we, you have created, according to uh, Finkelstein, uh, an industry called the Holocaust industry. So the Holocaust have happened. It's a disaster by all means in history, 
And, uh, but to be able to use it uh, regularly, regularly, in order to settle land that is not yours, to take rights that is not yours, to persecute people that you should not persecute, in order to force yourself on an entire land, regardless of any human value, uh, that, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's what when I call apartheid and when I say occupation, and, and when I look at it and say, this explodes, this status quo cannot continue and will not continue given the situation. So yes, the image of Israel in the Arab world is, is, is tarnished, it's a negative one. And, and it has linked itself to a certain image uh, regarding uh, people, regarding, I mean, people will generalize and, and I, can, I can see that, but at the same time, it's not anti-Judaism, that's not correct but people have a very low opinion of the Israeli state because it started with an original sin. It never recognized that original sin. It never apologized. It never said yes for a law of return, partial, full, regulated, and agreed upon. It never agreed and never agreed to a genuine Palestinian state. It weakened the Palestinian leadership uh, that came with Arafat and then with Abu Mazen, as flexible as Abu Mazen is. It weakened, it pushed the Palestinians to create Hamas. Hamas did not come out of a vacuum. It came out of realities of suffering and it pushed Palestinians to create Hamas as much as it pushed Lebanese to create Hezbollah. I mean, so, so basically we, we're in a quagmire. That's not true. We're not, it's, it's a very uh, superficial to say things are okay. They are not okay because also we are in a region that uh, when you mix with, uh, with a certain category of autocrats, you will hear whatever they think. Does that reflect the reality? Yes, you, you've had a poll, but there is a poll by the Washington Institute here in Washington, D.C., which uh, gives a, a, a solid, uh, a different opinion, though it's the Washington Institute. It's, it's more pro-Israel, and yet it, it was able to see that there is a big sizable proportion of the population, 70 and 80 percent, that has a, a negative view of, of this agreement and of the way Israel handles itself. So people are fed up with settlements, people are fed up with occupation, people are fed up with expansion, people are fed up with trying to destabilize Jordan, people are fed up and they feel Israel will try to destabilize the Gulf and will bring militarization of the Gulf with a small state that has a project 10 times its size. And it's going to be very hard to keep, to hold, to maintain. Thank you, Dr. Shafiq. Dr. Babut, uh, your comments. And also, just to, to bring up the same two questions, again, uh, on the UAE's, does it bring out the UAE's reinforced international profile as a forward-looking Arab state? And also, um, what next for Saudi Arabia since its, its launch of the API? Over to you. Thank you. Uh, I had to change position because it was too warm in the other room. Uh, right. Um, I have uh, one or two comments. I, I would uh, agree with uh, uh, David uh, about uh, what what he th thought uh, that you know there is some anti-Semitism in the uh, uh, in the Middle East or the Arab world. Although I wouldn't call it that way, but it's uh, just a way of looking at it. Um, um, I don't think this is uh, in any way, uh, um, if you like, uh, strange, uh, as, as much as we abhor that. Uh, but if you look at the, um, uh, in the Arab world, there is anti-Shia, anti-Sunni, anti-Turkish, anti-Ottoman, 
anti-Indians, anti-everything. It is, it is a nature of, of things that, you know, we need to kind of grapple with and, and, and deal with. And it's, it's obviously dying over time. There is also uh, a problem that, uh, that we, are, we conflate anti-Israel with anti-Jewish. Um, and, you know, you, sometimes they use Jewish instead of uh, Israel or Israelis. Uh, and I don't think that is intended. It's just like, you know, it is how that uh, the, the, the culture is. And of course, we need to confront those kind of things and we need to talk about it and we need to sort it out. Equally, there is anti-Arab within the Israeli public opinion, within the Israeli uh, culture uh, as well. And that has also to be, uh, to be sorted out. As I said, it's not just singling out uh, the Israelis or the Jewish. There is anti-Christian, there is anti, uh, you know, even within the Sunnis, there are d different anti-Sunnis groups uh, that, that uh, talk about, e uh, uh, about each other. And you just look at the textbooks of these uh, uh, that, that are published on this, it's amazing. Uh, and, and it's, it's uh, you know, in, in, one, in one way, it is not accepted, uh, but that's, that's the culture, but it's not, you know, we shouldn't take that as, you know, that we're, the, the Arabs are just basically anti-Jewish. Uh, you have to remember that there are Arab Jews, and there's Arab Israelis, and there are uh, Arab Sunnis, and there are Arab Shias, and, uh, and, and, and so on. So that is one thing, uh, you know, and uh, it's unfortunate that they conflate Judaism or Jewish with, uh, 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 with, uh, with Israelis in, in, in one way or the other. And I, I would, you know, thought that the rabbi would uh, be much more, if you like, uh, attentive to this because it is not just anti-Semitism. Uh, and, you know, while we stand for, uh, you know, uh, being anti-Semitism, we have to also remember that the Arabs are a Semitic group, uh, race themselves. And, you know, they look at the Jews as cousins and, you know, brothers uh, uh, at the same time. Don't so, explain Mein Kampf or the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion or the eternal Jew. Those have got nothing to do with the Israeli context or conflict. This is material borrowed essentially from classical anti-Semitic sources. You don't have that with any other context. But but it is this is this is a global a global issue that is being used uh, by you know political groups here or there, and I'm not I'm not denying it. It exists. I don't think we should deny these uh, you know the the wrongs in our societies. It does exist, and but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that it's not just necessarily you know if you just want to kind of uh, um, focus on uh, anti-Semitism in the in the Middle East, I think you will find well, that. And, I understand and, that there's a general issue of prejudice, but I think there is something specific with regards to anti-Semitism. And it may have been, look at it it. May have been exploited. Shia would say the same thing, and the Persians would say the same thing, and the Ottomans would say the same thing, and the Arabs would also say the same thing, and the Sunnis would say the same thing. So I we need to move the debate beyond that. Uh, uh, and, and it is up to the intelligent people around the world to be able to kind of guide this and rather than stick to these, you know, uh, and the narratives of the, the hate people who carry hatred for anything. Uh, and I think that is something that we need to, to, to uh, I, I just want to flag that up. But 
to answer uh, my friend Clement's uh, question about the United Arab Emirates, yes, I think the United Arab Emirates thinks that it's going to gain from this uh, in, in many ways. Uh, at one level, it gains a very strategic partner, uh, a very important uh, country in the Middle East, a powerful country with, you know, uh, and in terms of its defense equipment and its know-how and technology and uh, investment, etc. And there's been talk about that. So that is at one level. Um, to an, at the other level, it also answers some of its uh, or helps its conflict within the region, whether it is with Iran or Qatar or, or, or how, however you want to look at that. And, and it strengthens its, its uh, um, if you like, its strategy of being the, uh, the little uh, Sparta, as it were, uh, to have this powerful uh, regional country as its ally, uh, given the fact that, you know, the United States is not doing the role that used to be uh, in the past and it needs, it sees that it needs allies. And, you know, as you see that the United Arab Emirates is extending its influence and its relations beyond the Gulf to the Horn, you know, to, to the Arabian Gulf, to the Red Sea, the Horn of Africa, and to Eastern Mediterranean. And this is where Israel could become very uh, strategic partner, very important strategic partner for it. But also it strengthened its, uh, its image globally, um, especially within the United States. Uh, and whether Trump is uh, re-elected or not, um, you know, there is a bipartisan, of course, support for Israel and, 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 and so on. And this is going to kind of bode well for uh, the United Arab Emirates. That has lost some of its initial, if you like, gains in, in the Washington circles uh, at some point because of certain policies that it followed, including the conflict in the Gulf and, uh, and, and its conflict with, uh, with, uh, with Qatar and its uh, um, involvement in, in uh, the war in, in Yemen. Uh, so this kind of you know, rebalanced the, the, the relationship with, uh, with Washington. I think we can see that this is going to happen. So from a United self, if you like, interest, uh, they, they see this as, as, uh, uh, as a gain. Uh, and, you know, one can consider that as, as a gain, if you like. But my, my worry, my own personal worry, is that it could, uh, it, it could have some negative consequences. Not that I, you know, I'm saying this, that we're against peace. Uh, as I said earlier, everybody wants peace in, in, in the region. Uh, it's just because it, it is, uh, it's because it's precisely not framed uh, 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 as a way of, uh, you know, uh, uh, to resolve the Palestinian uh, question. Maybe it is to push the Palestinians into, um, into a situation where they just have to see that they have no other Arab support and therefore they succumb. Maybe it works, uh, but I don't think so. Uh, I think the Palestinians have taken a lot of pressure and, you know, they're, they're fighting for the very last thing that they can get. And even then, they're not getting uh, anything. And I don't think they're going to get anything from, uh, from this. I think it needs, uh, not the United Arab Emirates, but needs uh, a vision from Israel of how it sees 
its relationship with the Palestinians and also its relationship with, uh, with the region. And if I may just say something here, if you allow me, Clemens, just to... Uh, yes, please. To what uh, uh, our uh, friend uh, uh, Rabbi David just mentioned about Sudais. Uh, yes, I followed what Sudais had, uh, had said, and I, uh, and, uh, and I don't think the anti-Sudais is because that he's calling for uh, accepting of the Jews. I think it is to do with the hypocrisy that this man has been uh, propagating. Uh, like a, a year or so ago, he was, you know, speaking uh, from, you know, as, as you know, he's the Imam of the uh, Haram in Mecca, and of course, a very important man. And he was, he was speaking badly about Israel and about the Jews. Uh, and uh, again, uh, here he's conflating Jews with, with, with Israel uh, in, in one sense, and we have to give him that. Uh, and then he suddenly, you know, switched because of pressure. Uh, and it's that hypocrisy that, uh, that an imam like him, uh, who should be, of course, calling for peace, of course, calling for coexistence, but not necessarily just moving with the winds, uh, uh, as it were. That's why people were, uh, were against him. I even tweeted against him saying, come on, you know, you can't be saying this and that at the same time. Not, not rejecting what he's saying, but he is someone who is not trustworthy in the, uh, uh, in the public. And therefore, you know, the, 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 uh, it seems that Saudi Arabia, uh, although it doesn't want to, and this may answer your question about the role of Saudi Arabia, it doesn't want to jump in into this. It's very careful. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a much more if you like, important role uh, uh, to play than the United Arab Emirates, and it has a lot to lose from um, having direct uh, public relationship with Israel, at least the time being without seeing there is anything in, in return for the Palestinian. It could lose its you know, like privileged position uh, in the Arab and the Muslim world. But it is indirectly supporting the deal. And pushing Sudais to say that in Haram, in Mecca, in, in, uh, is, is basically, uh, you know, people are reading it as this is a Saudi uh, policy trying to prepare the ground for this. It's a wrong way of preparing people. You know, it's not that people are against uh, the Jews. People want peace, and that's what I hear, what I see everywhere. And, and as I explained in my earlier talk, uh, that you know, there were attempts by Oman, by Qatar, by Bahrain, uh, uh, even Saudi Arabia, uh, and, and UAE, all of the Arab countries as well, and the Palestinians, they all want peace. But what kind of peace are we talking about? And are we really just, are we resolving the, the main issues? Are we skirting again around it? This is where uh, uh, the issues is. And I think, you know, just getting today's as, as a face to, um, to do this, you're mixing uh, religion with politics and you're not doing justice to either. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Babu. Uh, I think we have two hands from the floor. Um, I think in the interest of time, we have about 10 minutes or so. Uh, let's unmute uh, my colleague James Dorsey and also Amim, Dr. Amim Lufti. Uh, we'll start with James. Um, uh, please, your question. 
Clements, not a question, but a comment, if you don't. Sure. And I, I think that the <clears throat> debate on anti-Semitism is a very important debate. And I actually think that David and Abdullah are not that far from each other. Fact of the matter is that racism, prejudice, is something that's universal. It's not unique to the But fact of the matter also is that <clears throat> in contrast to much of the rest of the world, what you saw, and I say this having lived across the, the, the Arab and the Muslim world, coming from an Arab-Jewish background, uh, what, what you saw in the Middle East or in, the, in parts of the Muslim world, as opposed to other parts of the world, that you had state-sanctioned or at least state-tolerated uh, racism, including anti-Semitism. And that goes back to regimes that adopted sect sectarian policies and what you, what you don't see yet is the institutionalization of anti-discriminatory, anti-racist, anti-Semitic uh, attitudes. And that's, I think, where, where the difference lies. But, but you know, in a sense, and I think it's important to note that in many ways, Abdullah and, and David aren't that far apart. Thank you, James. Uh, Amim? Yeah, um, I have a question uh, maybe for Mr. Bohr or um, Abdullah. And it, my question is that, uh, do you think that this is a, this is a UAE reproachment with Israel is a sign that they no longer feel that uh, te Islamic terrorism or global terrorism is as such a real threat? Because I ask this because one of the reasons that they had been hesitant, you know, Mr. Bohr, brought this out that, that, there's, that these are old ties. But the reason that they were accepted right now, um, I'm wondering if it has to do with that they think that, that the reaction to it cannot come back to their shores anymore. Okay, I believe that the question was directed. Secret, please. Yes, I, I, look, um, we have seen that the Palestinian issue can easily be manipulated for political gain and for a geopolitical rivalry. Um, and uh, terrorism and extremism is very much part, unfortunately, of, uh, of the Middle East, even if ISIS has been defeated and even if um, uh, other, other independent terrorist groups uh, such as Al-Qaeda no longer, at least at this moment in time, has the capability to, to, to launch international scale attacks. Um, but but uh, radicalism is there and, uh, and these groups will uh, inevitably um, use the Palestinian issue to their advantage when the opportunity comes. I think, I think what is different now, um, as opposed to in the 1990s, is that in, during the 1990s, there was a genuine optimism that Arab-Israeli uh, relations, that the Israeli-Palestinian peace process could transform the region for the better. You had um, Israeli leaders such as Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres and Ehud Barak and, uh, and so forth, who, who, who genuinely, in my view, um, sought uh, to negotiate with the Palestinians and sought to transform the, the region for the better. So there was a lot of optimism there and, and the smaller Gulf state wanted to, to, to support that process. I think what is different now is that uh, now it's hard, hard politics, hard geopolitics that are playing out. Um, the Trump administration is, as I said before, is conditioning its bilateral relationships with the Gulf states and how they deal with the Israelis. And uh, 
and uh, you know, for small Gulf states to say no to the United States and to the security umbrella that they have relied on for so long is very difficult because we have already seen what happens. I mean, let me give you an example. Um, Oman, which is the, which I would argue is is the Gulf country that has the closest and the most friendly ties to Israel. Um, Oman has never embarrassed Israel um, uh, the way that the other Gulf states have. Um, but even Oman was frozen out and isolated from the Trump administration by its own Gulf Arab neighbors. Um, even, and for Oman does not have the financial resources that the other GCC countries have. And yet what Oman had was something that was much more valuable. And that is that it has a genuine uh, and strategic relationship with Israel, uh, as opposed to uh, paying lobbyists in, in Washington to, to, to advance its agenda and to tell everybody how tolerant they are, when in fact they're using that uh, to further other geopolitical gains. Um, that is something that Oman did not do. Oman does not have to have to engage in lobbying games uh, in order to have a, a, a strategic partnership with, with Israel. And I think that that's something that distinguishes uh, the Omani strategic thinking and how it uh, has engaged consistently and not just uh, uh, for geopolitical, short-term geopolitical opportunities. So I think that, that Oman really stands out as the the perhaps the only mature strategic um, actor in the Gulf. Um, so this is this is the first point, um, and and Oman does not need to normalize relations with Israel in order to um, maintain its strategic partnerships with the United States and and Britain, um, whereas the others uh, have needed to do that. So it was able to resist pressure from its immediate Arab neighbors because the relationship with Israel is so deep and it's so warm and it's so friendly. Um, when it comes to terrorism, I think that, uh, and pushback against Israel in the region, I think that, um, I think that if you look at Turkey, for instance, uh, 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 Turkey is, is now playing the, 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 the anti-Israel uh, uh, rhetorically, but I think it's also understood that below the surface, should the leadership in Turkey change, I think that um, Turkish-Israeli relations could again flourish. I think that there's a lot of support in Turkey for a, uh, a robust relationship with Israel. And, and right now the tensions between Turkey and Israel is very much um, between um, Erdogan and, and Netanyahu, it's on the leadership level. Um, on the Iranian uh, front, I think that Iran uh, could eventually uh, modify its position uh, towards Israel. They're not going to do that for free. Um, Iran is a rational um, geopolitical actor. We have seen it in terms of how it dealt with the JCPOA and the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from it. But I do think that also historical ties and between uh, the Jewish people and Persia, they go back um, thousands of years. As a matter of fact, I named my son uh, Cyrus after the great Persian emperor. And in my limited engagement with Iranian officials, um, I have talked about the the uh, Jewish-Persian uh, friendship. And, and that's something that they understand. Obviously, that's something that they reject at this moment in time. But I think that that will eventually return um, because of the deep historical ties between Jews and, and Persians. So what I think is, is the clear answer, or not the clear answer, but, but my own 
view is that um, Israel-Gulf relations will move forward and, 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 um, and incremental progress will be made, but the Palestinians can never be left out of the equation because ultimately there will be attempts by other geopolitical actors to use the Palestinian card for their own political gain. And unfortunately, as long as there is geopolitical rivalry in the Middle East, Israel will find itself in the middle of, of many of these uh, inter-regional struggles. Thank you, Sigurd. Um, let's end off with one question and I'll leave one or two minutes for each speaker to to comment on this, we have one last question from the floor is, how sustainable is this normalization when we consider the geographical location and geostrategic importance of Egypt and Jordan, which signed peace treaties in 1979 and 1994 respectively? Both are in close proximity to Israel, but here the geographical factor is not the issue for the UAE. So how sustainable is this? We'll start with one or two minutes, I think we'll work the other way, we'll, we'll start with Rabbi David, please. Well, um, I suppose the simple answer to that is sustainable as the parties want it to be. Um, we do not live in an area, part of the world, that is uh, renowned for sustainability. Um, we all live in an area, every single country and everyone represented here has serious human rights problems in those countries. Um, trying to point the finger at one as if it's somehow worse than the others is disingenuous at both, at best. Every country faces the probability, possibilities of insurrection. Obviously, the more democratic you are, the less likely you are, but nevertheless, insurrection is always a possibility, so you never know in any situation how sustainable it is. However, I think that this relationship, I would like it to be driven by the areas that I'm concerned primarily with. Interfaith, respect, human rights, human dignity. I would love it if such things are. But what treaty in the world and what agreement is really motivated by such values? In the world of real politics, there have to be pragmatic interests. And the pragmatic interests here are obvious. They are strategic, they are security, they are financial, they are trade, they are tourism, all those things. And when those things are really there, then I don't think that this relationship is going to be moved. So I think not only is it going to be sustainable, I think it's going to be expandable. I think it will expand. And I believe it will ultimately be good for the Palestinians and the resolution of their plight. Thank you, Dr. Babud. Thank you. I, I hope that uh, I agree with the, uh, uh, Rabbi David, that, uh, you know, I think this relationship uh, could be useful for all parties, and I hope that it is, uh, and it become useful uh, to, to both parties. Um, and we need uh, to move uh, the peace process from where it is now to something uh, much more tangible. I don't think we should, uh, you know, while, while saying that and maybe answering to some of the other questions, I don't think we should ignore that this is something that, um, uh, yes, could help, yes, could move things forward, but it, it could have a blowback. And, uh, and my fear is that if it, is, if it doesn't tackle the main issue, and here the main issue is the Palestinian question, 
that has been used by so many parties, whether they are Arabs or non-Arabs, uh, for uh, all kinds of, if you like, uh, of politics and reasons and, and policies in the region. At the moment, Iran uses, uh, uh, you know, the Palestinian cause. Uh, we've seen now even Turkey is moving into that. And my fear, again, re relating to Amin's uh, earlier question, is that uh, perhaps this will uh, push more towards radicalization uh, instead of, you know, more uh, uh, reconciliation. Um, it will give the uh, radical groups more, if you like, food on the table to be able to, to use. Um, we, as we are seeing that the Middle East is not moving towards democracy. It's not moving towards human rights. Uh, and it is not, uh, you know, it's not moving towards political participation. And there is a fight against it. And Israel is going to be seen that it is actually uh, in getting itself uh, muddled in into these, all these uh, other conflicts, which will add more fuel to what is already there. Uh, that is my fear. And, you know, and I agree with uh, James that, you know, uh, th this anti-Semitism is, is a structural issue. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue. Uh, and, and, and it needs to be settled. I think this could add more to the anti-Semitism. So they would see that these, if you like, oppressive regimes in the, in the Middle East are supported by Israel, or these autocratic regimes are supported by Israel. And then, you know, there is, we talk about human rights, et cetera, et cetera, and then, then you have Palestinians who are deprived of it. This is where the problem is. Unless the Palestinian issue is resolved, and that is not going to come from uh, a peace process with a, a, a country far away from Israel. It comes with a, in a peace dialogue and a peace process between Israel and it is immediate neighbors, and in particular, in this case, the Palestinians themselves. And the, 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 the conflict there is very complex, as we know. It has historical, religious, ethnic, whatever you want to call it, uh, issues. But no conflict is uh, 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 reconceivable if, if there was uh, the goodwill to, to do so. And I hope that Israel would do so for the benefit of Israel, for the benefit of the Palestinians, and for the benefit of the region. Because without that, we are not sorting out the issues. It's, I'm not saying that you know, this is the cause of all the many issues, but it does actually uh, poison the atmosphere, it poisons the situation, it, it feeds into the radicals, into the, their narratives, it increases antagonism against, um, uh, of course, against democracy, but against Israel and against the Jews. And we don't want that to happen. So I think we should think outside the box by trying to find out and, and think you know, uh, critically about trying to find a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian question, because that is the crux of the matter. Um, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, this agreement could, could help, uh, but it is a very remote way of, uh, of doing it uh, without facing the real dilemma on hand. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Babu. Dr. Shafiq, one or two minutes, and then we'll have uh, Sigurd to, to have the last say. 
Well, uh, in, in, uh, in conclusion, uh, I uh, see that uh, the main uh, issue is uh, structured, uh, state-sponsored uh, terror put on people. Uh, state-sponsored uh, terror in the form that has persecuted the Palestinians uh, uh, for decades. Uh, it's uh, in the recent book of Rashid Khalidi, the 100-year war, uh, the 100-year conflict, the 100-year uh, struggle. Uh, uh, so the, the going to an agreement with the UAE will not solve it. And uh, looking for books uh, in the Gulf uh, uh, that uh, are uh, in, in any way uh, anti-Semitic uh, is not the story. Anti-Semitism is not the issue. It's Israeli occupation and persecution uh, of, of Arabs and Muslims and Christians and Palestinians on the ground. Uh, I read the uh, protocols of Zionism, uh, protocols of uh, uh, the protocols, but particularly that Russian document that has no author. Uh, when I was 16, I didn't believe a word in it. I realized since then that Zionism is not Judaism. I realized then that there are many Jews and even Israelis, and there were prominent Israelis even in the 1970s who, who spoke about Palestinian rights. So there was no issue here. It's not about the books. Uh, I, actually, these books, I doubt so many people read them these days. Maturity in Arab public opinion has gone way ahead. But true, you go into the uh, Twitter, into social media, you're going to see so many things uh, that are basically controlled. There are certain types uh, that have dominated Twitter, mostly uh, ministries of information. Uh, uh, so, so it's not about books. Uh, uh, I can find any book in the USA. Nobody tells you not to read a book. You can read it and criticize it. So it's not about censorship. It's about realities on the ground. Who's losing, who's gaining, who's suffering, who's being marginalized, whose land is taken, whose life is being uh, uh, destroyed uh, endlessly for young people uh, all across. We can always blame uh, so many. But it is clear there is a story with occupation. There is a story with uh, settlements. There is another story with East Jerusalem. There is a story in Hebron. There is a story all over Palestine with Palestinians. And unless this is addressed seriously, genuinely, uh, we will always be uh, in, in, in a state of conflict. And yes, one day a regional coalition will have this impact and another regional coalition will have that impact. But I do realize that the future of the Arab world is with a democratic development, is with the ability to reflect people's aspirations. And when you go to people's aspirations, yes, they would like to see justice and therefore justice is, is at the core. And I believe in Judaism, there is a lot of basis for justice, because when you look at Judaism, you look at the Talmud or the Torah, or you look at the Quran, or you look at the Bible, you can, you can see phrases that you can interpret in a certain way that takes you to the extreme of extremes. And I realize how certain fundamentalists would use that from Jewish to Arab. But at the same time, I realize there are a lot of human values that we can build on, and that part of that is a commitment to justice, to equality, to respect, to dignity, to human life, uh, in, in ways that can allow people to, to enjoy their, their, their being and to uh, flourish in their countries, rather than take their land, take their country, and tell them, we've come here after 2,500 years, and now it's like uh, we, we woke up suddenly, we're taking your land, 
you don't belong here. And, and these are populations that may have had, they have roots hundreds and thousands of years. In fact, some of the early uh, Jewish settlers believed that some of, many of the Muslims may originally have been Jews or non-Jews or whatever. But these are rights and nobody should take these rights, no matter. Now, you tell me one state, you tell me two states, but not a Bandustan not an apartheid, not discrimination, not third and fourth and fifth class citizens. We are in an era where people want to live with dignity and we see it across the world and it's coming back. Center, left of center, it's coming back. People don't want to be marginalized or put under a structure that behaves in a way that is extremely racist. I think this is, I, I don't care about an individual being a racist. I can debate racism with individuals. I can talk to anybody and we can talk and take and give. But when state racism, as much as state terrorism is at the core of things, then what kind of reaction do you expect from people? They, some will re react extremely in an extreme way. Some will react in a moderate way. Some will, 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 will go all the way. I mean, people will not allow that uh, structural racism to continue over their bodies and over their souls. And they also will not allow state terrorism to justify itself and then accuse them of being the anti-Semites or accuse them of being anti-Israeli or accuse them of being anti, they are not. That is a result probably when it exists of a, a situation on the ground and we need to find a solution. Once we do, we will have a much better Middle East and all peoples, all peoples, including Israeli people can be able to live in peace. But you cannot live with peace without justice, without rights, without humanity, without solving the inherent contradiction in the Zionist ideology, which has brought a lot of militarism to the Middle East and to the Arab world. Thank you, Dr. Shafiq. And over to you to have the final word, Sigurd, and also how sustainable this is, this deal is. Well, I, I, I would like to look at the world in a uh, positive manner. And um, there's no doubt about the extraordinary difficult geopolitical environment um, at this moment. And, um, and uh, it, it, could, it could easily go in, in which you have great uh, power competition um, on a global scale and, and small power competition on a, on a macro scale and a regional scale as we're seeing in the Gulf. But what I do think this conversation is reflective of, um, despite the diversity of views that we have heard, is that Israel is part of the conversation in the Middle East. Israel is a fact of the Middle East, in my view. Israel is a peacemaker in inter-Arab uh, disputes. The various Arab states has, uh, has to deal with Israel one way or the other. And it is because, in my again, in my analysis, it's because Israel has demonstrated to be a reliable strategic partner uh, even though there are many things one can criticize Israeli poli uh, policies for, Israel has nonetheless demonstrated to be a reliable strategic partner, and it will continue to be so despite um, all the rhetoric that that we're seeing, whether it's on social media or or, or elsewhere. Um, I do think that the moderate voices in the Gulf, and I would say that uh, all the Gulf, all the six GCC countries are. Um, moderate states supporting moderate policies abroad. And I reject firmly the politicization of Gulf inter-Arab Gulf disputes, uh, framing one party as extremist and the other as moderate. I think that that's, that's a politically motivated argument that has proven not to be the case. But I would say that um, it is really good and important that um, all of the GCC countries are finding ways in dealing with Israel. 
but it should not come at the expense of inter-Arab struggles and certainly um, for countries that embrace um, tolerance um, abroad, that is positive, but it's, it's less positive when they crack down on their own populations and, and selectively enforce human rights. And that's also part of the discussion, unfortunately. Uh, but I think, I think every educated observer um, and every informed observer understand that. So I think that overall, I think many gains have been made. I think that discussions like these are extremely positive. It's extremely important to hear each other's narratives, even if we sometimes disagree with one another. Um, and I think that more of these conversations will continue to, to take place, which hopefully uh, over time will contribute to better understanding between Arabs, Jews, between Israelis and Arabs and so forth. So, so I see this as, as a positive development, but I, at the same time, I think that it's really critical in terms of how the UAE um, Israel peace accord is managed and how that impacts inter-Arab dynamics. That's, that's going to be a key factor and, and, and we just don't know quite as of yet how that will play out. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Sigurd. I think we've gone over the time by about 15 minutes, but let me conclude. Um, let me conclude to say that, you know, the UAE-Israel deal was also uh, an assessment of risk and opportunity for all parties who are involved in the deal and for the rest of the Gulf states, I think they have their own risk assessment to conduct in reviewing their ties with Israel, in reviewing the structural uh, status quo that we talked about earlier. And, and for, in terms of the uh, Palestinian issue, it remains a salient and emotive issue for Arabs, uh, Gulf Arabs notwithstanding, and also an issue that that is salient here in Southeast Asia among Southeast Asian Muslims, something that the Institute is, is going to examine as well. So with that, I would like to thank all the speakers for their invaluable comments in what has been a very forthright and fantastic discussion. Um, and many thanks to the MEI events and publicity teams and Kevin, of course, for putting this together and op making it operational. Uh, I thank the audience as well for, for being here and listening to all the speakers attentively. And so thank you everyone and hope to see you again. Thank you.